Hello and welcome to The Yap, the podcast designed by a young artist for young artists. We bring you interviews with professionals in the business, including other young artists, to provide you with helpful information as you pursue a career in opera and to open up dialogue about the important issues our industry faces. I'm your host, Emily Hughes, a mezzo-soprano in New York City, and on today's show we talk to stage director Francis Rabelais about intimacy choreography and the importance of this work. Francis has an interesting perspective and great advice for singers navigating these tricky situations. Here's our interview. Hello, Francis. Welcome to The Yap. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you on. Um, so you've done a lot of stage directing. Um, you've directed for Fort Wayne Symphony, New Orleans Opera, Opera Project Columbus, Pittsburgh, and Cincinnati Chamber Opera. And you've been assistant director with Des Moines Metro Opera, Wolf Trap, Opera Colorado, Washington National, Cincinnati Opera, Glimmerglass, Pensacola, and Crested Butte Music Festival. A lot of places um, with young artist programs, too. Um, but it's really interesting. You got your start, I guess, as a singer, as a voice performance major, and then got your uh, diploma in stage direction from University of Cincinnati's College Conservatory of Music. Um, so what, what made you go from being a voice performance major to wanting to do stage direction? I think it was a lot of things. Um, there was a really clear moment for me in a rehearsal when I actually, it's something that <laughs> if I wasn't young and very stupid, I wouldn't have done, but I basically told another singer where they should be on stage <laughs> according to the director's staging. And the person rightly kind of fussed at me about that, but I was like, oh. And then other singers would kind of come up to me and be like, do you know which scene this is or where I start here? And I was like, oh, you start there. And oh, you start there. and. I kind of realized that that was not um, everyone's experience in their college opera staging. So maybe I had a little bit of a different viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And um, I also found that I had a lot of passion for the research and the multidisciplinary um, aspects of directing. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt really caged in by singing. Um, yeah. Caged in. Um... I'm, yeah, I'm curious to know more what you mean by that, like caged in by just having having someone telling you specifically what to do all the time or... A little bit, but I, I think I mostly felt caged in by my Fach. Oh, okay. I made a switch from lyric mezzo to lyric soprano. Mm -hmm. um, I went from singing Carabino to Mimi my mm -hmm. senior year, and I was not a fan of the character options. So I think that led to me pushing for something else in opera. Mm -hmm. When I started looking into directing and directing scenes in undergrad, I was like, oh, I love opera way more than I love singing. Yeah. And if I don't love singing opera the most, then I need to find the part of opera that I do like the most. And that's been directing. Cool. And uh, how did you... Like, how did you find the program at University of Cincinnati, um, you know, having gone from being a singer, did you feel like it was like a steep learning curve or like were most of your peers um, coming from different backgrounds or were a lot of them also mus like coming from a musician background? 
Well, the directing program in the artist diploma is very small. Mm-hmm. Um, it was either one director or two directors at a time. Oh, okay. So it was, I mean, you know, varied backgrounds, yes, but over, you know, many years. Um, you know, and when I, my first year, I was the only director in the program. My second year, they had another director who also had a background as a singer. Um, but then after that, it was uh, somebody who had a background as a stage manager and, you know, different um, backgrounds through the program. Okay. But, um, you know, the program at CCM did a lot of great things for me. I worked with some great faculty and I learned so much about how much I didn't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think um, when you're young, so I took four years off in between my undergrad and my artist diploma. And I think when I was young and doing scenes programs um, and just doing, you know, little micro stuff in New Orleans, I was very confident that I knew more than the singers, Mm -hmm. which at that point was enough. But that didn't mean I knew a lot about directing. Yeah. (laughs) So I I feel like going to CCM was a great, uh, very intimidating wake up call that, you know, I had to really look at myself and say, are you here to feel good about yourself? Or are you here to learn something? Yeah. <laughs> are you going to do it because it's easy or because you have a passion and a drive to do it and you want to get better? And I think I got there. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think a lot of singers go through that to that point of like, <laughs> where, you know, having to confront those things that you really, really don't know and you really need to figure out and setting us being able to set aside your ego, you know, enough to enough to really right. take those things on. Um, cool. And then so what got you interested? So also you specialize in combat and intimacy, uh, I guess, direction or choreography, or um, I don't know which way you prefer to label it. I would say choreography. choreography. For both. Okay. Yeah. Um, intimacy director is a title that I have not yet earned. I'm hoping to do it. COVID has sort of put a crimp in my training plans, but, um, I am looking forward to that, uh, one day. So what, what, what got you interested in those, uh, areas specifically? So I attended the society of American fight directors national workshop in 2018 I left, uh, a, Wolf Trap was very generous um, and let me out of my contract a day early so I could drive from D.C. to northern Louisiana <laughs> in two days oh, wow. <laughs> and show up for a stage combat. Uh, I call it sword camp, uh, <laughs> but it's a stage combat training workshop where you're training eight to 12 hours a day um, for three weeks. And uh, they had... Um, one of the pioneers in the field of intimacy direction, Tonya Sina, uh, was there to speak about intimacy direction to uh, the advanced group. I was in the first level group, but I was like, oh, intimacy direction is something that I think I'm partially doing a little bit already. Mm -hmm. And I really see that there's a need for this because a lot of intimacy directors come from stage combat because it is sort of specialized in its scenes. Mm-hmm. Not to say that, you know, there aren't fight directors who are also, you know, directors. There's a lot of crossover mm-hmm. there, but there's the, 
that weird Venn diagram of uh, sorry, choreographed and spontaneous that is very close with um, combat and intimacy. Right. And um, so there was a lot of overlap there and it was something me and my, uh, my fellow trainees talked about a lot. Um, there's, especially when it comes to scenes that involve uh, intimate violence, a lot of fight choreographers and fight directors were doing that sort of scene already because um, if you're in a scene where, you know, there's partner violence, then you're sort of doing the combat mm -hmm. part anyway. And so it's sort of, uh, I think in many ways it grew out of that. So my combat training um, really made me aware that there was someone uh, actively talking about this and training people to keep performers safe. And I was very interested in incorporating that into my directing. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely those two, you know, combat and intimacy are both like the things you least want to leave to the act, like the actors or singers to improvise, you know, it's like, they both need to be <laughs> like pretty much, you know, but I think, I mean, I've been in such as a singer, I think it, there is definitely a need for it because I know I've been in productions where the director did leave much too much of it just sort of to, for the singers to figure out on their own, which, um, it's tricky and it doesn't, and also doesn't promote consistency and. Correct. Correct. And those are all things that, um, you know, I've trained with different schools or training educational groups on intimacy. And this is one of the first things they talk about is like, you can't leave it to chance. Mm -hmm. You know, I, and I think singers really understand this because you wouldn't leave your high notes to chance. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just pretend that the last cadenza doesn't exist. Yeah. You can't just pretend that a kiss doesn't exist. You can't just pretend that a certain slap doesn't exist. You have to rehearse them and then you find a way to make them feel spontaneous and in the moment after it's rehearsed and safe and repeatable and everyone is comfortable with it. Right. Um, so I would be really curious just now to talk about like what your process is when you first get, you know, you get to the first staging rehearsal or maybe even, I don't know, you might even speak to the, um, the singers before the first staging rehearsal, but what, it, what is the process, you know, like, let's say there's a, an opera that has a scene that involves kissing and just a very physical rom romantic scene. Um, what do you do start to finish to get that on its feet in a way that's both you know, serves the drama of the piece and makes everyone comfortable. Sure. And I, I, as a director, like to have conversations with my performers beforehand anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I know that our industry is not always built around that. I think sometimes they're like, okay, everyone's done Barber 10 times, so we can just show up right. on day one and <laughs> do it. And it's like, no, I'm, I'm not here to be you know, a Tetris master where we just put all the puzzle pieces in order. I want to find what's unique about our Barber of Seville or whatever we're doing. Um, but definitely when it comes to intimacy, I like to give performers a chance to consider their own boundaries and what they're interested in about the character before we start rehearsal. And especially if there's something like nudity or violence or anything that could be 
anything that I consider especially vulnerable or um, possibly triggering or traumatic, I think having a conversation beforehand is very, very important. I mean, and it's a, a note about boundaries. A lot of times we talk about boundaries in, a, um, in reference to a personal traumatic history. Mm-hmm. But I also like to point out that boundaries can be anything like, oh, I broke my wrist two years ago and it still really bothers me. So if we're doing any arm grabbing, can we just make sure that it's not my left wrist or whatever it is? Like these boundaries are information. I think a lot of people see them as um, a block, but it's really just information. And I think boundaries have the same value as like, a key signature or mm-hmm. a time signature does like they're giving you information about the piece and about the character that is just a useful part of storytelling. Um, yes. So <laughs> trying to get us back on track. I yeah. do like to have a conversation beforehand, just like I, as a director, like to think about my staging beforehand. I'm not a director who shows up. I personally have five different plans And then I'll show up in the room and I'm like, oh, plan three is the only one that even has a possibility of working because these steps are taller than I (laughs) pictured them in my head. So we do this. And the same thing goes for intimate scenes. I mean, it can be as, you know, as simple as, oh, this person is taller than I thought. And that changes the way this uh, particular piece of choreography is perceived by the audience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no moral judgment or um, value judgment on that and how it impacts my staging or my intimacy choreography. It's just we need to make an informed choice about what tells the story we want to tell. Um, So when you get to the room, you know, you also, you being an intimacy choreographer, a director, need to realize that it's one thing, you know, Uh, I can say I can run two miles nonstop right now, but getting actually out there and doing it is very different. So rehearsing a piece in the room is going to be different. And so boundaries may change. And um, it's important to allow time and space and uh, communication for that to happen. Yeah. uh, For the performance. I wanted to ask you actually about that because I, I was going, I was thinking about it and I was like, well, you know, I think sometimes I certainly have experienced as a performer, like you don't really know how you're going to feel about a certain aspect of a scene until you're really in the thick of it. Um, And how, how do you think, like, just uh, both from a singer's perspective and from your perspective, like, how do you handle those situations? How do you think it's best for a singer to communicate, you know, maybe those changes in boundaries to a director Well, hopefully the director, the intimacy choreographer, the stage manager, and even the company has built an environment where boundaries are uh, enthusiastically respected. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really, uh, I think singers want to go along because they feel it makes them quote unquote more professional. Yes. (laughs) And I'm hoping that as we become more respectful in our rehearsals and in our artistic processes, we can create an environment where a boundary shift is also something that we rejoice in the way we would rejoice in, you know, 
a new cadenza that you've just discovered works really well for you. It's, you know, it's something that is not a limiting factor and it's not a shameful thing. It's just, you know, and I found that this moment doesn't work for me anymore. And if you're a singer, something I would recommend is being able to be really specific mm -hmm. about what you need to change. But I would also say that you'd never need to explain why. Right. If I think sometimes singers want to justify why their boundaries are the way they are. And I don't think that that's productive in the rehearsal room. That's a discussion to have with your therapist, with a trusted friend out who's not working on the same opera you are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I, you know, it's, um, if you're using the rehearsal process to figure out why your boundaries are where they are, I would say you're using the opera to do your therapy and your emotional work. Mm -hmm. You can know, but I, I hope that singers are never in a situation where a director's like, well, why can't I grab you there? And like having to dig up trauma or, you know, personal trauma, medical trauma, anything like I, like, let's just respect people's boundaries. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you sure, you know, well, what, I mean, do you have any recommendations for what a singer can do if they are faced with a director who they feel is not really respecting their boundaries, maybe does not, you know, has not been trained in any of this. Cause I, it definitely happens. <laughs> I know from, Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just heartbreaking to me. The things I have personally witnessed when I was not at a point in my career to feel like I was uh, empowered to stand up mm -hmm. in the room. Yeah. I think especially for young artists, you know, it's, that's the hardest place to be because you feel already like Absolutely. you're trying to prove yourself. Yeah. Yeah you want to come back yeah. for a real contract and you don't want to make waves. Um, so this has come up when I've talked to different young artist groups um, throughout my work of, well, who's enforcing this? And I think the thing, the only thing I can say to you is there's standards. Now someone's written it down. There are people who are professionals saying this is not okay. And hopefully that's enough to shame or motivate a company into doing the right thing. And I would also say if a director is asking, you know, why is your boundary where it is? Be like, I talked about it with my doctor and I talk about it with my therapist and you are neither of those people. And I would hope that the director gets the message. It's, but it, it comes back to empowerment. And this is something I think about a lot. Um, I think particularly coming out of our training systems in academia and also our training systems in young artist programs there's a lot of you don't know what's best mm -hmm. but when it comes to your body you do know what's best mm -hmm. when it comes to the way you use your body um on stage you kind of do know what's best i mean a conductor can ask you to do something in a certain style, but uh, it's sort of apples and oranges. Maybe that's not a great metaphor, but. <laughs> um, well, it is similar. It is similar in a way to, you know, just the way we, the way singers have to also think about protecting their instrument and making sure that they're doing mm -hmm. the right thing for their voice. Right. And sometimes you do have to speak up for those reasons as well. You know, like I can't, you know, this is, 
even with staging, you know, sometimes you have to say like, I can't, you know, sing this. I can't do this fall five times today. Yeah, yeah. I can't. Right. I can't or do it. <laughs> like, I, or I won't be. I can. I can do full. I can do this full voice once. Let me know when you want that to happen. And I would say that part of that type of communication is important. And I um, strongly encourage it. I know every situation is different and every interaction with a conductor and a director and a company is multi-layered and complex, but I'm hoping hearing about the progress in these areas gives young artists, um, gives a young artist the feeling that they can protect themselves in this way. Do you think you might be able to give sort of like a, I don't know, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but just sort of like a, a script even, like if a, if a singer is working with a director and they're asked to do something they don't want to do, like what's, what do you think is the best way to put it in a way that the, you know, the might, the director might be most responsive to? Sure. Um, it's funny how, <laughs> this is a bit of a coin turn, but I would say, um, talk to the director and say, I would love to know more about what you're trying to achieve in this moment, because I, um, this crosses a boundary for me, or I have hesitations about my physical ability to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully the director will take that as, you know, I'm interested, you know, the singer is saying, I'm interested in your story. I'm interested in what you want the character to convey here what are our other options for doing so? Right. Um, like I'm on board with your mission, but this is where I'm at. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I've seen professional singers who have a great relationship with a director they've worked with seven, 10 times. And they, you know, they have this shorthand of like, this isn't working. Like I've seen a singer just make this like face at a director and they go, yeah, I know, we'll fix it in a minute. Like, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> but if you're, you know, it's really hard in our, our traveling based business where we're constantly forming these new artistic relationships, which have um, quite an astounding level of vulnerability mm -hmm. to them, um, which you don't want to mess up to be able to, to put down a boundary um it can be quite a lot of courage to do that and hopefully just relaying to the director i am interested and then if the director keeps pushing don't be afraid to go to your artistic administrator and your if you have representation your agent because they can also be helpful in navigating that situation mm -hmm. yeah and on the other side of things um you know, aside from the physical choreo choreographed aspect of it, um, how do you work? Because I think a big, sometimes a big part of those kinds of scenes is, is having, you know, so let's say it's a character that, that is in love with another character, or maybe has like been married to a character for 20 years, or, you know, how, how do you help, um, how do you help foster that sort of, uh, chemistry and, um, I guess, uh, comfort comfortability that would normally be developed over years of a relationship. Sure. How do you, how do you create intimacy or chemistry with characters mm -hmm. when you have just met this person? Um, I think a lot of it is with, um, awareness of where they are on stage and shifts in their body. Um, if, 
the characters are new to each other, say a Romeo and Juliet situation, you know, tracking where the other person is, responding to their every move, mm-hmm. um, can be can show that excitement and chemistry. And characters who are more familiar with each other, maybe in a long-term relationship, um, it's less about discovering what they do to the character, what character A does to character B. Mm-hmm. Um, it's less about discovering it and more about reveling in the familiarity of it. And the question is, how do you convey that with um, what part of the body is open to the other character and what part of the body is um, closed to the other character and how, when, when does eye contact start and uh, when does eye contact break and is this a hand you know and is comforting or is it a hand that you've never touched before and it's all new and exciting mm-hmm. and things like that are um, create uh, the audience's perception of chemistry. Right. Um, yeah, I'm curious what you think about that too. Um, like audience perception, you know, as a director, how much do you, how much do you want the performers to be thinking about wh- how, like what, my, what I'm doing, how, how is that affecting the audience and how much do you sort of try to separate, you know, separate that from the performer's um, mindset, if that makes sense. Like, is it something you want your singers to be thinking about or is it something that you're thinking about and you try to sort of like keep from? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I, as a director, am not super interested in the performer's thought process. Mm -hmm. I'm a very body-based director, which is probably why I turned to combat and intimacy and all these other body-based things. And I, I dabble in social dance and ballet and things like that. Um, I think, mm, I think what I am really excited about is when I see a character responding to the world around them, Mm -hmm. whatever cosmos we have created on stage if a character is responding to the world around them, the performer is responding to the same set of steps they've been walking up and down all of Tech Week. But if it's the character's first time walking down those steps, Mary Widow entrance, Mm -hmm. something like that, um, then the audience will know what the character is experiencing through the reaction in their body. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, so sort of finding, uh, well, finding like the discovery of the moment. Um, in, in right, or the or... familiarity of the moment. Right. You know, if it's a, a king surveying his whole kingdom, then it's more familiar or right common, yeah, less commonplace. I mean, nothing happens in opera that's like, this is the same as it's right. been every other time. We wouldn't have an opera if it was like that. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, I had a, I had a, a a director. He was like the acting teacher we had uh, in college. Who would always say like, "No one wants to, you know, watch somebody like waiting for a bus at the bus stop." You know, it's like right, right. Um, so it's unless the bus turns into a dragon, and then we definitely want to right, see it. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, opera's never um, never about small choices. <laughs> yeah, or but I think stakes. as far as the performers are going. I don't need performer and character to have the same thoughts mm-hmm. is what I would boil that down to. I, 
you know, I'm less interested in the thoughts than in the body behavior. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm also very curious um, about, you know, this time that we're in and, uh, you know, post COVID, it's going to be interesting, I think, for all of us when we're back in the rehearsal room and we're confronted oh, yeah. with these intimacy scenes and we have this whole new mm-hmm. sense of personal space. I don't know. I, speaking for myself anyway, like uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I never was so aware of it before, you know, as I am now, just like even just somebody talking too close to your face is like just a little bit like, whoa, right now. So yeah, how do you think that's going to be? And do you have any like ideas about how you might approach things differently or? Well, you know, um, I've been talking to some other directors who are doing um, socially distanced performances. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, it's just really interesting to hear about the process. And I think um, we're all just going to have a new set of boundaries. You know, it's going to be boundaries about personal safety and boundaries about, oh, I'm in a room with 20 people and I haven't been in a room with 20 people for the past half a year, (laughs) maybe a year. We don't know how long this is going to go on. So uh, I would just encourage singers, directors, companies to really be willing to take the time to, uh, during the process, evaluate if your safety plan is working as far as transmission, aerosols, many smarter people than I have done a lot of research on that. And I don't have too much info there. But, um, you know, our emotional reserves are in a very different place than they were in February. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think giving a little space for us to get used to, A, working together and B, working together on highly emotional artistic material um, and just respect that you might react differently to a character you've sung before and to honor that and um, understand that we're all a bit different now. Yeah. Um, I would like to ask you a little bit, if you, if you don't mind, um, how you approach, well, you talked about this already a little bit, but in terms of sexual violence, how you approach staging that, I mean, you talked about, um, you know, the fact that you don't have to justify these boundaries. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to like bring up, why you know um but when you when you approach something that like that from your side of things um like what does that conversation look like in terms of getting to know that person's boundaries and also just going through the you know how you plan how you plan staging something that's that you know intense and potentially triggering even for the audience sure um Yeah, well, and this is something that I think sometimes get over gets overlooked when you consider intimacy is that um, especially scenes involving sexual violence take a toll on everybody in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, From the director to stage management to the PA to anybody else involved in the scene, and that um, there needs to be space and the ability to walk away and to figure out what you need to go on for everybody in the room. Everybody in the room has certain boundaries that they are or aren't aware of. 
um, everybody in the room has um, emotional baggage that they bring in mm -hmm. that they are or aren't aware of. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, these, these things are taking a toll on everyone. Um, I, as a director, when I come across a scene of sexual violence, for me, that's when I turn to a company and say, I need an intimacy choreographer or director. Um, these things are so close to reality sometimes. Um, you know, your brain is very good at playing pretend. Mm -hmm. And sometimes your brain and your body converse in such a way where you lose track of exactly where you are. Um, yeah. And it can, especially in a, in a highly emotional, physically, vul physically vulnerable scene, um, such as a sexually violent one. Um, so, you know, part of an intimacy director or choreographer's job is to read between the lines um, in regards to power structures um, and maybe, and also to read in between the lines when those power structures are stopping a performer from giving free consent. Right. If, if the performers start behaving subtly differently when a general director is in the room, the intimacy choreographer is the one who is empowered to say, let's take a five. Let's talk about what just happened. Let's, you know, let's notice how these changes are affecting what we're doing. Um, and, you know, maybe the general director is a great person and very supportive, but that is the person who signs the checks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's, and it's different to participate in a, in an intimate scene um, with your boss around. Um, so being aware of those power structures is so important. Um, yeah. And um, I'm, I'm curious too, I think, I mean, we have to, you know, we're, in opera, we're working with works that were written in different time periods, often with very different sets of like, what is um, just values around gender, power structures, um, sex. So how do you approach something? I don't know, maybe you can even give like a specific example of um, an opera you've staged, but something that was written um that is you know let's say not politically correct today or even just like uh, just a little bit um or just just enough to make make somebody uncomfortable or potentially to promote something you know to sort of that glory maybe glorify something that now we would not want to glorify such as you know um abuse or something like that don giovanni you can say it <laughs> right right <laughs> don giovanni or uh, Carmen in some instances or, you know, like, Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, I, I, um, so I, I guess it was over a year ago, but in my mind, that's recently, uh, staged my first Carmen and it's really interesting to think about Carmen. I mean, to me, Carmen is a story of domestic abuse and partner violence. Yeah. Um, and to other people, it's a story of Carmen being a puppet master and then the puppet finally breaks free and kills the puppet master, you know? So it's, what story do you wanna tell and digestible and I don't know, the company really has to be on board if you're going to 
push the the traditionally accepted version of the story. And I think a lot of companies are out there willing to do that, of course. But if um, you got to know where you're, where you are, and who you're working for, and what they're interested in, and hopefully that's established long before the singers ever get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, hopefully the director and the company have had that communication open, and you know, if you want to do Carmen on the Moon, and nobody ever touches because they're in spacesuits. <laughs> TM, because I think that's a great COVID production. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, hopefully, you know, the company should know that and be on board with it. Yeah. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, but as a... But I guess, I guess I'm curious a, what you feel like, um, do you think it's better to serve the original intention of the work or do you think it's better to... Uh, recast it in our you know to in our understanding in our modern understanding society yeah strangely both Mm -hmm. because you can't ignore either right if you ignore the text and the music then the audience is like well what what in the heck is going on um and if you ignore the common you know the zeitgeist of how we understand consent and um understandings of gender roles and um if you ignore that then the audience isn't interested in the story of the opera so where do we frame it um and for me for carmen that always involved framing don jose as a really bad guy like to begin with interesting um and everyone around him reacting to him in a certain way because he's doing military service for because he's wanted for murder like he's not some nice guy (laughs) you know um so there's there's ways to frame things that help you tell the story you want to tell whether that is more in a traditional mindset or a progressive mindset or a mindset that's neither you know Mm-hmm. Carmen on the moon. Right. You're interested in telling the story of the moon landing. I'm sure you could make Carmen do that. Somehow. There's, <laughs> there's always a way. Maybe the music wouldn't go with it, but. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's something I think, you know, like having been in productions that kind of go in both, swing in both directions, like it's always interesting. I think there's something to be learned from. I think it, with, you know, with a, with an audience who's informed, there's something to be learned from seeing a production that's very traditional because you kind of learn something about a different time, what, like the time when it was written. And there can be a lot of great discussion to be had around that. But then there's also something to be learned about a work by, you know, casting it in a new light. So, right. I guess it's finding the balance. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about Act One of Noce, and Susanna is often groped by multiple people, mm-hmm. and the question is, who reacts to that, mm-hmm. and how does, uh, and why? You know, who reacts to what's going on, who reacts in disgust, you know, um, and what's actually going on there. If we're interested in Susanna's reaction and understanding that Susanna is dealing with a very toxic worse workplace, yeah. <laughs> which I am, <laughs> then 
then we do that through our staging. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's, you know, just for a giggle, then it passes by and right. she never slaps anybody back or, you know. Right. Which it often, I feel like is just for a giggle. <laughs> it happens yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, really interesting. I, I had a question from one of our listeners on Instagram that I thought was really mm-hmm. good. Um, I'm curious how you, uh, or she was curious how you handle, um, how you handle it. If let's say you choreograph a scene, you've rehearsed it and maybe in uh-huh. a dress rehearsal or even in a performance, someone departs from that for whatever reason. Oh, but how sure. do you handle that? You know, maybe it makes the other, um, scene partner uncomfortable and, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the ideal situation is that it's a cover who understands what the scene is and not like somebody flown in from across the country. Um, and if any company runners are listening, this is why you need an AD, somebody who is prepared to make these artistic decisions and do them in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because if it's, if it's, you know, third performance, the director is gone, the intimacy choreographer is gone because it's set, then it's up to the AD or at some companies, the stage manager and the performers to figure out what works for them. Um, so. Sorry, I think I might have I might have um, confused the question when I asked it. Um, I, oh. I actually meant. um that's an interesting question too, though. <laughs> but, um, but I actually meant, um, like what happens if like somebody, um, departs from what was like, does something that was not planned. Oh, strays from the choreography. Yes. Ah, got you. Not leaves the production. No, yeah. Sorry. That was... <laughs> starts, starts improving the choreography. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also why you need an AD yeah. <laughs> and a stage manager who same answer. Um, uh, and a stage manager who knows what's up. So the whole point of having intimacy choreography, fight choreography, staging is that it is repeatable. Right. You know what to expect. You know, you as a performer know what is being asked of you and what the toll on you is emotionally and physically. Mm-hmm. Um, in singing terms, if you are not doing something repeatable, every performance is going to affect your voice in a different way. Can you perform two nights later or not? You don't know. Mm -hmm. That's not sustainable. That's not a way to have a career. And I'm guessing it's probably not good for your voice. Yeah. Um, And with intimacy choreography and fight choreography, people are at risk when you start changing things. Um, There's actually some contracts now in theatrical circles that say changing intimacy choreography is grounds for termination and being asked to leave the production. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a safety risk. If Tosca starts going crazy and stabbing Scarpia in a place where they don't expect it, real damage could be done. It's a stage knife, but they're still hunks of metal. Right. And so you know, kissing someone in a different way or something. I mean, if you are a singer and you feel that a moment isn't working anymore and it needs to be changed for you and your scene partner's benefit, the way to do it is to not surprise anybody. 
you need to have a frank conversation with the people who are responsible for maintaining the production, the AD, uh, the stage manager. If you're changing something, I would also say maybe you want to call in an artistic administrator just to get their opinion on things and mm -hmm. make sure things are on the up and up. But, you know, saying we're, you know, I want to do the kiss later. I want to do the kiss earlier. I want to do it longer. Oh, and the conductor should probably be a part of that, <laughs> especially if it, you know, is yeah. getting in on timing a vocal line. Yeah. Um, and, you know, hopefully the conductor has a lot of our opinions on the artistic value of a kiss as well. But, um, you know, be on the up and up and be communicative about it. It's, it's sort of the same process as if you um, sustained an injury, you know, mm -hmm. I can't do this move anymore. Um, what are our other options? I want to make sure that everybody knows that this needs to be changed. And you never want to give the impression that like, well, I don't like the director. So I'm going to change this once they're gone. It's, it's, you know, you still want to be committed to the story and what the production is trying to achieve but bringing up other options i don't think is bad as long as everyone is consenting to it right but, but what if you're what if a another choice let's say <laughs> is sprung upon you in a performance and your stage director is you know gone off to another production um, um what do you what do you suggest a singer do in that kind of situation because i know it definitely happens um <laughs> From. Yeah, unfortunately it does. Yeah. And it's a, it's a real dick move. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I have to say any singer who says I just get carried away. Yeah. Well, you don't seem to get carried away so much that your notes are sharp. Right. So why are you getting so carried away that you are slapping someone at the wrong time? Yeah, or touching them in the wrong place or. <laughs> exactly. There's no excuse for that. Um, that impulse can be in your body and you can recognize that impulse and the time to recognize that impulse is in the rehearsal room and say, Hey, my character is really more interested in grabbing this person by the waist than the shoulders. Right. Can we talk about that and see if it serves the story, but doing it. Oh God, doing that on stage in front of people is just, wow. Yeah. Um, that's, that's pretty low. Um, and I would say if you're a, a singer experiencing that, then you need to go to those same people, the stage manager, the AD, an artistic administrator, right. um, a manager, if you have them, if you're in a young artist program, go to the person who runs the young artist program and say, this is happening to me and I need you to know about it. Um, get it, write it down in an email. Yeah. Um, and because in my mind, that is, if it's, it's tantamount to sexual harassment. Yeah. It is someone touching you in a way you did not agree to be touched. Right. And it is very not okay. And I want to acknowledge, I know I'm encouraging young artists to really take a stand for themselves. And I know that's often very difficult. And I want to acknowledge that it's often an impossible situation. But I encourage a performer in that situation to think about it if it helps to think about it in terms of this is not repeatable. Mm -hmm. I don't know what my reaction should be unless I know uh, what I'm going to be reacting to. Mm 
Um, and if it helps, you know, to not worry about, oh, it's about me, it's about I'm not game or whatever, it's framing it in a way that's very much based on the craft of acting instead of the art of performing might be helpful there. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's good advice. I think we're often afraid of admitting, you know, the things we're not comfortable with because that makes us seem less like easygoing and, you know, so if it's more about um, doing the job and less about, unfortunately, that's like kind of where I think, especially young singers, that's the rock and the hard place they get stuck between. Um, Yeah, it's really hard because you want to ensure that your next contract is coming. Yeah. And you never know what is going to count against you and you don't want this to be it. You know, there's also like a bigger conversation about philosophy bordering on therapy of like, we probably don't have that much control over our lives anyway. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's probably not one thing that got you a contract or would make you lose a contract. Right. I mean, and I think that's something I think, I think that's the kind of thing that, you know, as you mature as a singer, you start to realize, okay, like actually I, I can, I can say things that are important to me because it's not, not everything. But I think I know from like when I was younger, like it just, um, you, you just really, you just really worry about like, what's gonna, um, make or break something. So I just want young, young singers to know that they're, they can bring these things up and there are, there are maybe better ways to do them, to bring them up and, um, Sure. And I would also say if you're worried about it, maybe ask a singer friend who's slightly older. Yeah. Or maybe who has worked at that company before, ideally, you know, somebody who used to be in the Young Artist Program and say, I'm having, I'm experiencing this. Who do you recommend I go to first? Mm -hmm. Who's going to help me address this? Or, you know, if it's a singer who hasn't worked at that company, um, can you help me frame this? in a way, see, I also want to be really careful talking about this because I don't want to give the impression that you have to take all emotions out of it. Yeah. Which I think is a really toxic idea, especially for people who are women and female presenting Mm -hmm. and all the baggage that is assigned to them around their emotions. Yep. (laughs) Um, But it's, oh, it's a sticky situation yeah but getting a second opinion from someone I mean I'm a big advocate for writing down what you want to say before you say it just because I'm so forgetful mm-hmm. and it's it it all it you know it can really help in these types of situations yeah and what uh what are some resources that you think would be for singers who want to uh just empower themselves to understand more about um these sorts of about staging these situations, about mm-hmm. uh, maybe even just like understanding there are our own boundaries in these kinds of situations. What, what are some resources you might recommend? Um, so one of the groups I've trained with, uh, oh, now I need to make sure if it's singular or plural. Um, oh. <laughs> theatrical Intimacy Education. Okay. Um, T-I-E. Uh, they... Uh, One of their founding educators 
has written a book called Staging Sex. It's by Chelsea Pace. Mm -hmm. It is available to purchase online from one or a couple of different places. Um, But it is a really excellent distillation of their like first level workshop. Mm -hmm. Um, They are focused a lot on academia. but it's it's totally applicable to anybody working. They talk about um, f- boundary finding exercises, how to talk about body parts and sexually violent scenes in a neutral way, so we're not building apprehension around them. Um, I'm curious to know a little more about what you mean by that. Like, so I mean, language is yeah very important. So, um, what do you what do you think is like the best way for a director to be talking about these things, or even the performers themselves? Sure, um, talking about the character and not the performer. Mm-hmm. If I'm talking to a Tosca, I'm not going to say singer's name. This is going to happen to you. It's like no Tosca experiences this. Mm-hmm. That separation between performer. And character is so important um, because it lets us get into a character that is unlike us in, you know, which is helpful in many different ways. Um, And this is actually one thing I would love to see audiences change is the way they talk about character and performer. Hmm. Talking to a performer who sings Carmen and say, you were so sexy up there not okay. Carmen was very sexy and attractive up there. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why would you say that to someone and you don't know their, you don't know their sexual orientation. You don't know their family history. You don't know their committed relationship status, whatever. Um, being able to separate, you know, this character does this to this character, this character receives this action um, is a great first step to neutralizing is kind of a weird word because it implies that nothing is going on, but to um, alleviate some of the apprehension and intensity uh, we can experience about intimate scenes. Mm -hmm. Because there's always, I mean, you know, something I think a lot of young singers deal with is this character is behaving in a way that is outside of my normal. Yeah. They're, either way more reserved or they're behaving in a way that doesn't benefit other people or they're you know Mm -hmm. way more um open about their sexuality than the performer is and being able to separate those two is really valuable and the director can do that by talking about character and not the performer Mm -hmm. she looks at character name instead of you look at character name yeah and I think you mentioned something about also how you refer to just sort of the physical aspects of things, body parts. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Um, the terms we use to describe people's bodies in day-to-day conversation often have uh, value judgments, mm-hmm. positive or negative. And they definitely imply something about the person you're talking about. Um, so if you use a term like pelvis, um, to describe 
your iliosacral, you know, the whole, (laughs) that the bottom of your torso, instead of something like, um, I don't know, describing what you might call grinding Uh as full body contact from shoulder to pelvis. Mm -hmm. It's definitely, it doesn't leave any room for interpretation. Right. Right. Because everybody has a different experience. Um, everybody has a different perception from what, uh, behaviors and actions are from the media and the media we consume. So when you use, um, anatomical terms, you got to get specific. Yeah. Um, you know, grinding could also be pelvis to thigh, you know, you're just being specific about what you're looking for and what the character is doing. Um, I mean, at the very least... It just prevents two performers from trying to do the same action, quote unquote, that has totally different body parts involved. Right. Right. It just, yeah. So there's no, no guesswork involved. That's, that's one of the most important No things. guesswork. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's a huge part of intimacy choreography is taking the guesswork out of it. Um, this is why you talk about intimate scenes even something like a kiss or a handhold before you get to it in the music. Mm-hmm. You talked earlier about how sometimes the director will be like, yeah, just figure it out. Well, if we talk about it beforehand, we can make a plan and then we can repeat that plan and then we can change the plan if we want to or need to. And that's the real value. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of, we kind of went off on that tangent while you were saying, but the, the book, the book you were talking about is Staging Sex, right? Yes. I'll put a link to it or something in the episode notes. So if people want Great. to um, order it or whatever, you know, look it up, they can they can find that there. Um, yeah. Is there anything else? Actually, you know, we may have some people listening who are stage directors themselves. So and maybe don't have any intimacy training, but like, I know uh, the language stuff you just mentioned is uh, certainly very useful. Is there anything else you would just like recommend like a quick, like, you know, easy things that you can do as a director to help your, um, your singers be more comfortable and the process work better? Yeah. Um, Creating an environment based on open communication is I think really important. Um, And knowing how to apologize um, and to apologize well. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of a helpful apology is not justifying your mistake. Yeah. Which I think uh, can really derail the conversation. You know, if I step on someone's toes, I'm just going to say, oh, sorry, and move on. Yeah. If I um, go, oh, well, I wasn't looking at you. And so my foot was in the wrong place because I was also trying to turn to talk to this person. Like what? (laughs) It doesn't change the fact that your toe has been stepped on. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change the fact that I am genuinely sorry and I'm trying to do better, but it does take up a lot of time and it actually puts an emotional burden on everyone else in the room. Right. This is just good life advice. (laughs) I, I mean, that's the thing with, with all of this stuff, there's so much, that just applies to being a decent human being and fostering a, like a healthy relationship with another person. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that our relationships 
as opera artists are so uh, built quickly. Right. Yes. <laughs> are so rapidly constructed that sometimes we feel like we can take shortcuts. And when it comes to something like intimacy, you know, if the two performers have worked together for a long time, they can take shortcuts. But I, if I am a director new to them, I don't want to take shortcuts. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, learn how to apologize. Um, oh, and if there is nudity in your show, there needs to be a nudity schedule that is created with the consent of the performer. And to define that, you just mean like, you know, at what point in the process? Have a plan. Yeah. So if we're doing something like Zalame, which often has nudity nowadays, mm -hmm. um, there's a whole different discussion about that. Um, <laughs> we need to have a plan of what the performer wants to wear to learn the choreography and when the choreographer and the director and the performer find it useful to move to uh, a bathing suit and then a bikini and then when and how are we going to are we going to rehearse nudity in the room um, mm -hmm. what uh, measures uh, is the stage management or rehearsal department going to take to make sure that um, observers are not involved in the are part of the nudity rehearsal right um, just things like that it's it's basically giving people time to prepare themselves for vulnerability. Yeah. Would you also would you also recommend a similar schedule for kissing? I mean, I know personally, I've had the experience where the director has not given any indication when we when like the re actual like real kissing should start in the rehearsal process and so then <laughs> there's this like awkward thing between the singers they're like should we do it today like should we actually do the real kiss today <laughs> like and you're just like in this like awkward like i don't know like yeah okay i guess we could try it today like it's like it's it just as a performer it's kind of like annoying to have to if be anything that. stage management just needs to know when to bring the mints Right. 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 Like it's there's yes. the complex emotional side to this and then there's the very practical side of like stage management just wants to know when to bring them in. And we and we want to know like when to like, you know, maybe bring our toothbrush Brush your teeth after again. Lunch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um of course. Of yeah. course. Whatever your production needs. Yeah. I think yeah, just expectation like have it's so nice as a singer. Sure to have like to know what to expect when you go into a rehearsal when it comes to things that are that sensitive you know kissing or yeah one of the things that chelsea pace recommends in staging sex is using kiss stand-ins oh um and using hands to communicate uh lip-to-lip -lip contact mm -hmm. and that can be really useful if somebody is sick if you don't want to work on uh if it's not time to do full kissing yet, it's a great way to develop uh, the shape of the kiss mm -hmm. without having to worry about mints. Yeah. <laughs> or just yeah, limiting. I mean, I think especially after COVID, I think we're all going to like try to limit that kind of stuff as much Absolutely. as possible. So. I mean, or we'll be developing staging where, I mean, and sometimes, you know, you'll do a kiss stand in and you're like, well, that's better than any kiss could be. So just keep it. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of communication to be done that's not kissing. Right. Any body part, any physical interaction, 
whether in close distance or far away distance can be choreographed as wildly intimate mm -hmm. towards you know platonic intimacy familial intimacy romantic intimacy sexual intimacy there's so many different ways to accomplish connection mm -hmm. and i think for directors going back to this question um having a broad range of tools to make that happen is something that will only make your operas more enjoyable yeah great well, um, I'm just going to ask you some fun questions now, <laughs> just to close up. Um, Great. So, um, so I like asking this, you know, we're all so immersed in opera, but what is your, do you have a favorite um, non-classical artist or album that you like to listen to? Mm. I, <laughs> I haven't been listening to a lot of music. Um, oh, Actually, I did discover an artist that's new to me called Bones UK. Oh, I don't know them. It's like great workout music. Yeah, Bones UK. They have some some real angry lady jams. I'm into that. Nice. <laughs> and also the uh, the Birds of Prey soundtrack oh. has been a favorite of mine. Good movie. Cool. Highly recommend it. Love cool. the soundtrack a movie and album recommendation awesome <laughs> yeah um so here's here's a like a would you rather question that i've asked some other guests but if you had would you rather work on the same opera for the rest of your life but be able to do it anywhere in the world with like all different casts or would you have rather be only able to work with like the same group of people in the same place, but be able to do any opera. Do I get to choose the people? Oh, in that's the second a option? good question. Hmm. <laughs> Let's say you get to choose some of them, but not all of them. <laughs> oh man. Um, that's really, really difficult. Um, you know, I've only directed one opera twice. Mm -hmm. What opera? Um, and that is, as one. Oh, cool. I directed it for Pittsburgh and for New Orleans and very different approaches both times. And honestly, that piece is so interesting that if a company were to come up to me and say, hey, would you do it again? I'd be like, yeah, there's tons more to explore here. I'm mm -hmm. still really, you know, Hannah's a great character and I want to get to know her better. Um, but like, I've also done, there was a period where I worked on four or five Barber of Seville's in three seasons mm -hmm. and like I'm good for a while so <laughs> it's a really hard question to answer I think I would take oh but I love travel so much this is very difficult um well fortunately it's not actually going to happen so we can... okay great well I can't travel anywhere right now well, so yeah, I guess I'm gonna go with of... the one where I travel because that sounds great <laughs> yeah it does sound really good right now um if you had to work on only one opera for the rest of your life, do you do you know what it would be? Mm. Purely logistically, I think the ring cycle, if you called that one opera, would just get me the most bang for my time. I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> um, as far as other pieces that like have held my interest for a really long time, um, Zalame, mm -hmm. um, I could probably be really happy working on that one every couple seasons 
lot lot to do there is a intimacy <laughs> oh yeah too. absolutely um yeah um if you were going to do something completely outside of the performing arts what do you think you would do oh man i have always wanted to be a librarian i just like being around books <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's really hard because i've you know Sometimes I think if I wasn't a director, maybe I'd try and like weasel my way back into singing or do like cabaret vaudeville type stuff or, but that's all performing arts based. I know that's, that's, that's why I stipulate that because I know it's easy for me to think of other things I would do also that, but they're all performing arts. So, right. I think I'd be very happy as a professional dog walker. Hmm. Dogs are the best. Do you have a dog? We are fostering right now. What kind of dog? She is a blue tick hound. Oh, I don't know. Her name is Beulah. She's very pretty. Um, She definitely needs a place with a bit of a bigger yard than we can give her. So I'm I'm happy she'll probably be with a new family Mm -hmm. in the next couple of months. She's pretty happy here, but she's definitely a rescue she's not very confident being indoors so we're just trying to love her where she's at and make her comfortable and i think she'd be a very good uh ranch dog mm-hmm. running around yeah, and I, chasing I sh- possums i should have mentioned this at the top but you're based in houston right so i am and that's where you are now yes yeah yeah Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great talking to you. And I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have. Um, And good luck with your work. I hope you have some real live in-person work soon. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure doing my first podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. It's very glamorous. Yes, as you can Um, see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for reaching out. This was really cool. And I hope I get to work with you sometime. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Have a good evening. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. And that's the show. A big thanks to Frances for coming on and talking to us about this important work. You can find links to her website and the resources she mentioned in the episode notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Young Artist Podcast and on Twitter at Young Artist Pod and now also on Facebook. Our theme music is by Nick Gish and our logo was designed by Rachel Abrams. Next week, we'll interview young tenor and founder of the Yak Tracker Facebook community, Jordan Weatherston Pitts, about his young artist advocacy and how he's building his professional career after doing several yaps. Until then... Be well and sing pretty. I'll see you next time on The Yap.